Spring Community Church hosts Matt Ayers of Wesley Biblical Seminary as he presents a sermon series on spiritual warfare. Today is session 5 of 7, titled Demons and Their Activities, Part 1. Well, it's good to be back. I'm especially in a good mood tonight because my family came back from Haiti after being away for, you know, over two weeks. And so Lily's here with me tonight, although she's in youth group. So um, she'll be happy to see Coach Dennis. And, uh, but it was hard because they finally got home around 4.30 and then I had to turn around and leave and be here. So, but this is my family away from family. So I'm thrilled to be back. Okay. What I want to do, as usual, is do a brief review of what we talked about last week before jumping into tonight's lesson. And tonight's lesson is quite interesting because it's kind of like the juicy stuff that most people want to hear about when you talk about spiritual warfare, demonic activity, and how uh, attachments occur and these sorts of things. But before getting into that juicy material, I just want to review really quick from what we talked about last week. Does anyone remember the central topic or even title of the lesson from last week? Uh-huh. Yeah, our power and authority. Uh, we talked about, first off, that the devil and the powers of darkness want to keep us in fear. Being in fear is one of the suppressants to uh, living into our power and our authority as Christians. This is really like a zooming in on the idea of the elephant and the mouse, the analogy that we gave at the very beginning. So we started out talking about this, and we, talk about what, we talked about one of the primary areas that the enemy attacks us. Does anyone remember one of, if not the primary areas that we undergo attack? Say it again. Yep, our self-image, our self-image, right? He lies to us about who we are. And so then we turned around to say, well, who are we according to Scripture? And we identified a number of different things, just a reminder, things that you all know and you've heard of before, but it's always good to be reminded of who we are and whose we are as Christians. Uh, does anyone remember uh, one of the things, our identity in Christ, six truths? Do you remember one of the truths? I'll give you a hint, a Latin phrase, imago Dei. Yeah, we're God's image bearers. We are made in His image. That's one thing that we talked about. And we drilled down a little bit on what the omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, the omniscience of God is. What is omniscience? You remember the meaning of that word? Yeah, he's all-knowing. And we said normally we think about that in terms of he knows all things, but it's more than that. His understanding is also perfect, and his judgment is perfect. He has no lapse in judgment. He is full of wisdom, perfect wisdom. And we said in his per perfect wisdom, with no lapses in judgment, very intentionally decided to make you. And that's a big deal because that's an area where we will undergo attack. Undergo attack. So image of God, number one, one truth about who we are in Christ. Number two, God has redeemed us. We talked about the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross. Does anyone remember what that word efficacy means? Yeah, effectiveness. It's just a fancy point. It's effective because we're theologians and we have to use fancy words, that's why. Uh, we said that what Jesus did worked. There's nothing that stands between us and our Creator and that reconciliation. Not even original guilt from Adam. Not, there's no sin that the blood of Christ doesn't atone for. And that's where I told the story of the Satanist ritual to become a member of a Satanic temple or a church and, and the weird baptism thing and the proclamation, the confession that Jesus' blood cleanses of all sin but not mine. And that's just not true because Jesus's atoning work is effective to cleanse all sin, not just to deliver us from the guilt of our sin, but also our sin nature. It's effective. It works. It's powerful. So, number one, we are made in God's image. Number two, we are redeemed. Number three, we are children of God. Number four, moving a little bit quicker now, we share in Christ's authority. He shares His authority with us. We see this in the Gospels where He shares His authority with the disciples, and as well as in the book of Acts. Number five, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And number six, God has redeemed humanity but not fallen angels. Those were six truths about who we are. Because why do we want to be clear on those things? Because what the devil does to suppress our power, or let's say the power of God in us, to keep it dormant so that it's not fully active and alive. Let's say you're running on one spiritual cil uh, cylinder instead of all six that you have, is he attacks our image. 
And so we need to be reminded of who we are so that we can fire on all these cylinders. And then we pivoted and we talked about hindrances to God's power flowing freely through us. We talked about three hindrances to power, three things that create blockages for God's power to flow through us. Does anyone remember one of the three? Yeah, uh, emotional wounds and reactions. And we focused on the reactions. We said that we're all wounded, but we have these sometimes very appropriate and natural reactions to those wounds. But we need to discharge those reactions. We talked about, grossly enough, excrement. That just like our physical bodies, we need to get rid of the waste. And if we don't, they'll create blockages that'll make us sick and we'll become poisoned from the inside. The same is true from the emotional reactions to wounds. That we need to release our anger and release all of the different reactions that we've had stored up. We need spiritual excretion. Emotional, I know it's kind of gross, but it's an effective analogy. We got to let that stuff go because it creates spiritual blockages inside of our lives that prevents God's power from flowing freely within us. And I said that this is hard to do. It's hard to do because a lot of these wounds are very, very deep and it takes courage, not just faith, but courage to let some of this stuff go. And to forgive people. Okay, emotional wounds and reactions. Number two, self-image problems is another area of hindrance. When I talked about Western culture being very individualistic. We talked about social media, Facebook, and Instagram, and how as an individualistic culture, we value and measure our value in competition with others. How pretty am I compared to this person? How rich am I compared to that person? How well-behaved are my kids compared to that person's kids? And this is a detriment to our self-image because we're not to measure our own success against other people, but against what God says about who we are. The third hindrance is theology problems. The devil lies to us about who God is. And we have the wrong ideas. When we have the wrong ideas about who God is and that he's for us and that he loves us and he's forgiven us and all those wonderful things, it prevents his power from flowing through us. And then I gave you the, sil- the silver bullet to spiritual warfare. Do you remember what it is? Intimacy with Jesus is the silver bullet. Why is that? Well, it's obvious. Because Jesus straightens out and clarifies and speaks truth to us about who we are. So that when the powers of darkness deceive us about who we are, we have the closeness of Jesus and his truth close to us so that we can neutralize those deceptions. So not just lies about who we are, but also lies about others. Jesus tells us the truth about other people while the devil lies to us about other people. And then, of course, Jesus also reveals to us truly who God is. And so when we're close to Jesus, the enemy's attacks of trying to lie to us about who we are, who other people are, and who God is, they don't work because we're really close to the king. So that's the silver bullet. That's what we talked about last week. Um, Do we have any questions before moving on to tonight's topic of demons and their activities? And I always like to review this stuff because it's so easy to forget. Forgetfulness is can be demonic, by the way. Not saying that just because you forget doesn't mean you have a demon, but he loves for us to forget God's word, to forget what we've heard, to forget all forgetfulness is a common thing. Wow. You ready for the exam? Matt, will you hand out the exam? I'm just kidding. It wasn't that funny, I guess. <laughs> All right. Ready for the juicy stuff? All right. Let's look at our table of contents for our lesson. First, as usual, we're going to do an overview. And then we're going to talk about what we can know about the powers of darkness. There's a lot that we can't know, but there's some things that we can know. And we want to clarify these things because remember, Satan's a liar and his minions are liars and they will lie to us about who they are and what they're capable of. So we have to be clear about what the Bible teaches concerning what in fact it is that they do. Then we're going to talk about uh, types of ground level spirits. And then we're going to talk about six ways demonization occurs. 
And I'm going to explain what I mean by that word demonization. It's not possession. A lot of people think demon possessed. That's not what I'm talking about. That is a real thing. Very, very, very rare, though, is possession. And uh, uh, another typo, nine activities demons promote. And that's very intentional language. Notice that it doesn't say nine things that demons make you do. It's nine things they promote. They're trying to get you to do. Because only in possession do they have full control of someone. So in other words, you're not going to hear tonight that you can blame all your problems and your sin on demons making you do it. This is not a devil made me do it seminar. So nine activities that demons promote or promote in this case. And then uh, if we have time, common myths about demons. And I think we will have time to cover these common myths. So that's what we're going to do. Ready? Let's do it. Overview. Satan is a created being and therefore not omnipresent. What does omnipresent mean? Can't be everywhere. Can't be everywhere. Where do we see this in Scripture, that Satan's not omnipresent? It's a very clear passage in Scripture. That's one. That's not the one I had in mind, but that certainly is an explicit declaration that Satan, if he roams the earth, he's not omnipresent. He wouldn't need to roam if he was everywhere at once. That would be one. Seeking to devour and destroy. The book of Job. Right. Where have you been? He's been wandering around. He can't be everywhere at once. This means that he needs help. Right? And this is where demons come in. He can only be in one place at once. This means that he needs helpers to do his bidding. In Haiti, and sorry that most of my examples come from Haiti. It's just where most of my ministry experience has been. I've been there for, let's say, 13 years of the 15 years that I've been in full-time ministry. I was talking to a witch doctor, and I said, tell me about the process of conjuring spirits. And he started to list out some of the spirits that he conjures. And they're pretty typical, the names of the spirits. And by the way, uh, evil, unclean spirits, demons usually have multiple, multiple names, uh, more than one name. Why? Well, because they're deceptive, right? And he said, but there's one that we never conjure. It's not that we're not allowed to, we just really don't like to do it if we don't have to. And we said, who's that? Lucifer is the name he goes by. He's talking about Satan. I said, well, why do you never conjure Lucifer? He said, he's a nasty bugger. He is just nasty. I just find this really interesting. I was telling this story. I thought, because you can't trust whist doctors, right? Because they're servants of the liar. So you have to go into these conversations knowing that they're going to lie to you and you kind of got to sort through. But thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit within us to help us to discern that's nonsense. There might be something to that. So I went back to the classroom where we're training Haitian pastors. And I was telling them the story of meeting with this witch doctor. And I said, he was telling me this. And I said, but there's one spirit that he never likes to, if he doesn't have to, conjure. And there was a girl, a young girl in the back. She said, oh yeah, Lucifer. So I thought, okay, another testimony to this reality. So he's not omnipresent. He needs helpers, but he does show up. He does show up. There's more we can say. Let's keep going here. So that's our overview. The demons are his helpers. So what can we know? What can we know about the powers of darkness from scripture specifically? Number one, does anyone want to guess what the answer is to number one? They seek to blank people. Nope. That, that is true. We do know they seek to deceive people, but something else. Yes. How did you know that? Ah, I looked at the Bible verse. Well done, cheater. I mean, ma'am, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They seek to inhabit people. They want to inhabit people. There's some attempts at explanation. How's baby? Good. Congratulations. There's some attempts at explanation behind why demons seek to inhabit people. Um, we've talked about one explanation, possible explanation uh, in a previous lesson. Does anyone remember what we said of why demons want to inhabit people? Okay, they don't have a body. That's true. What else? There, there are additional answers. Let's go a little bit further with it. Uh, not necessarily control. They do want to control. They absolutely want to control. But that's not particularly why they're seeking to inhabit 
Oh, interesting. Hadn't thought about that. That's a good answer because God wants to inhabit us. Yes. Okay. So that's one thing that we said in a previous lesson. They're jealous that we have these physical bodies and their spiritual beings. And according to the tradition, Genesis chapter 6, one of the great rebellions, the angelic rebellions, is the desire to have sex with humans. They, they saw this and went, this is good. We want this. So that's one. The other one is the history of where some demons come from. And this is intertestamental tradition. This is not explicitly in the scriptures. We said that demons are the disembodied spirits of the giants. Do you remember we said this about the Nephilim? And uh, Peter also is seeming to affirm this in his epistle in the New Testament, as well as Jude. They're drawing on the tradition that states this. So while the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, it does seem to imply this is the case. That some demons are fallen angels that God has punished. Other demons are the disembodied spirits of the mutant giants who are the offspring of the union between embodied angels and human women. And therefore, in their very nature... They had bodies. They want bodies. They like bodies. They're half human. And so, what are they doing? Seeking to inhabit people. They want a body back. So, they like to be inside of bodies. Now, we're going to see in a moment, this makes sense. One of their major activities is to cause physical illness. Do you see how this kind of makes sense? They want to inhabit people. And as a result of that, they're making people sick and ill. And one particular illness that we see on several occasions in the New Testament is uh, crippling, paralysis. Uh, there's some explicit cases in which Jesus cast out demons and then cripples were able to, to be normal again. So we'll get to that in a moment though, but there you see the seeking physical embodiment and making sick. We'll get there. But let's look at this Bible verse. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through, this is Jesus speaking, waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. By the way, the Bible depicts the desert as the place where demons dwell, waterless places. Jesus is drawing on this understanding and clarifying this understanding. So the desert is the unclean place. I'm going to come back to this at the end of our time together. Andy, will you remind me to come back to this point, the desert as the unclean? Thank you. It's not in my notes. It just popped in my head, and I want to make sure I get it. Thank you. They find no rest. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And what's his house? The body, the person, right? And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. There are other verses that indicate, not just indicate, but that explicitly state that demons like to indwell people. So inhabit. They want to inhabit people. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's seen, well, the story of the pigs on the hillside, right? When Jesus casts out demons, they say, please don't send us to the abyss, send us into the pigs. So it's because of that case, it seems the answer is yes. But going even further still, there is ancient Jewish tradition that talks about uh, goat demons and other uh, animals of the desert and the wilderness that demons inhabited. And you'll notice, in, if you know anything about uh, Satanism and the Satanic church, what's the image of Satan? A goat, a goat. And that comes from the Azazel tradition from the scapegoat in the book of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement. And there's a long story behind that. But this comes back to the wilderness being a place where the demonic dwell that was considered to be like the haunted place. Now, also keep, well, there's, there's further naturalistic understanding, uh, explanations we can point to, but we don't have time to go there. But nonetheless, the answer is yes. It does, if they can't find a human body, they want to be attached to something. Now, a non-animate object, an inanimate, not non-English <laughs> people. Yes, we find that too, not necessarily in Scripture though, but we do find, especially people who have made a ministry, when I say made a ministry, called to the ministry of deliverance and who do this full time, all of them testify to the fact that unclean spirits can attach themselves to inanimate objects. 
Um, we found this quite frequently in Haiti, where curses would be placed on certain objects. And this is common in animism uh, across the history of civilization. This is not just Haitian voodoo, uh, but they can be attached to objects. And so it seems, we don't know definitively, but so it seems cause disruption and illnesses by way of being attached. Um, I have lots of stories I could tell about this. Um, one quick one, really quick one. We knew this little girl of a dear friend in Haiti, um, and she was very, very sick. And they, her mom, after trying everything, would end up going to the witch doctor to try, to, for healing. She had stomach cancer. She was about nine years old. And, and the, the witch doctor would always um, attach a demon to some kind of object, usually a, a bracelet or an anklet or a necklace and then tie it around her. And 100% of the time, they made her more sick. And every time we'd go and visit, we were sure to cut those things off of her ankles and her wrists and her neck. And there seemed to be a consistent pattern of demonic attachment to objects. Um, now, there's further that we could go in terms of, let's say, biblical support for the idea of the intersection between inanimate objects and the spiritual realm. Um, the Ark of the Covenant would be an example of this, an inanimate object, yet, right? But representing a spiritual reality. So we do know there is some mystical connection, mysterious connection between the physical and the metaphysical. We don't understand it. We don't know. That's the long answer to, so it seems they can attach themselves to inanimate. But also, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is much more in the business of exorcism than the Protestant Church, as well as the Eastern Church. And they have something called, called infestare in Latin. Listen to it again. Infestare. What is that? Infestation, right? Um, there are places that can be infested with the demonic as well, not just inanimate objects. Um, homes can have infestations of the demonic. And if the hair is standing up on the back of your neck and you're going, is this, is this, is this? it's real. It's real. Now, remember, I don't tell you this to make us afraid or anything like that. God is so much bigger, but it's good to be aware of these things. In fact, John Wesley himself, <laughs> the founder of Methodism and eventually an offshoot of Methodism was the Nazarene church, had his own stories of his own house that was haunted by a ghost. Does anyone know the ghost's name except for Andy and Matt? I know they know the answer. Starts with a J. Jeffrey, old Jeffrey. And uh, unexplainable phenomenon in the house. And a lot of times where violent crimes occurred inside of a house or satanic ritual abuse victimization occurred in a location, locations can be infested. Uh, we dealt with this a lot in Haiti, uh, where people would come to me and say, I think my house is infested. And we'd go, and we'd use anointing oil, and we'd pray, and we'd fast, and we'd sing hymns and songs and walk around the house in the perimeter of the yard. I would walk the campus of West, uh, Wesley Biblical, of Emmaus University quite frequently. I'd walk the perimeter and pray. Um, I've walked the perimeter of the building at Wesley Biblical Seminary in off hours. I've prayed over every single faculty office multiple times at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Um, so... Long answer, I think so. Regional spirits, yeah. Yep. Yep, we're actually going to get to that specific item here before too long. So let's put that one on the side and we're going to get to it. Great questions. Um, a second thing that we can know about demons, they do have different personalities. They are persons. They are persons. One guy, his name's Derek Prince, and I do recommend you look up Derek Prince. Have you heard of Derek Prince? Some of the stuff he said, I think he goes a little far. He's one of these guys that I think sees demons too often and has a demonic explanation for every, um, everything, every phenomenon. But some of the stuff he says is really good. And helpful. So I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater with Derek Prince. Um, but he makes a statement that I think is really helpful. He says, when people are unhealthy spiritually and they don't know why, and if it is demonization, realizing that what you're battling against is a person, not some flaw of the flesh or some imperfection of your own or some unrepentant sin, there's actually a person attacking you. He said, that's 80% of the battle just the knowledge that it's a person, not some impersonal force. And it might, 
not even be your fault. And, and we're going to get to this. Uh, uh, one of the myths about demonization is that if you're demonized, it's because it's your fault and you're in sin. That's a myth. That could be one reason, right? So they do have different personalities. There's a, a number of different Bible verses we can point to with this, but we see this in Jesus' own ministry and how the demons respond to him. There's a consistency in terms of their posture towards Jesus. They know who he is. They're afraid of him. They beg a lot of the time, but not all the time. But there is a difference. It's not the same personality every time the demonic appears in the scriptures. So they do have different personalities. They are destructive. They are destructive. Let's read this little section of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. This is interesting. Now, all I'm pointing out here in this segment of text is that this demonic spirit, unclean spirit, it says, is destructive. He's cutting the guy, he's causing the man to cut himself. Um, if I understand right, I've been out of the States for quite a while, but that cutting is, is a thing. Um, I wonder when I read texts like this about, is this demonic? Is this a mental health, health issue? And by the way, we're going to get to some of these myths. One of the myths is all mental health issues are demonization. That's a myth. There can be mental health issues that aren't demonization. Some of them can be, some of them absolutely are, and some of them aren't. They're just simply mental health issues. Now, to be faithful to this text, there's much more happening in this text that I can explain quickly than just the demonstration that demons um, are destructive. This little story comes in a sequence of stories in Mark about a little girl who dies, about a woman who's hemorrhaging, and this man. And what these sequence of, this, this sequence of stories is telling us is that Jesus has power over death. And this man and his state is the personification of death itself. Where does he live? In the tombs. It tells us that twice in two sentences. What else about him? Nothing could hold him down. Nothing. He was stronger than anything they tried. Um, specifically, he lived among, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. He had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So the, if we're to divide this text into different semantic units, the biggest unit is he's unsubduable. You can't chain him. And here's what's cool. So in other words, no one can beat death. Jesus walks up to the shore and the man begs for mercy. Do you see the contrast? There's one here who can. He can chain up death. Easily. Death begs Jesus for mercy. This is why Jesus is the only way to salvation. Nobody else has the keys. Just him. We beg death for mercy. How much money do we spend on health care? Death begs Jesus for mercy. And that one's alive in you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has chains to bind death that death can't break. Oh, so good. They Say that again, sorry. And the dead places in your life. That's a good little specification. Not just physical death. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the dead, what she's, a lot of you probably can't hear, the dead places inside of our lives, he can reconcile and deal with and bind them. Um, another aspect, that we're, we're coming up on Easter Sunday, 
And there's a little detail in the resurrection story that I love that communicates the same idea. They roll back the stone and they look inside and the cloths that Jesus was wrapped in are ripped apart and strewn, strewn absolutely everywhere, right? No. What, what does that mean? There was no struggle. There was no fight. We get the image. We get the image of Jesus snapping awake and just unwrapping himself calmly, folding up the bandages, bandages, whatever, and laying them into place. There was no big battle. This was easy for him. Now, obedience to suffering we know was hard, right? Please, Lord, take this from me if you will. But in terms of standing face to face with death, that's not a problem. Not for Jesus. Easy. They cause illness. This is a big one over and over and over again in the Gospels. And there were so many Bible verses uh, for me to cite for you. I had to just pick a few. Um, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now notice, it doesn't just say he was blind and mute. He was a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Now, this is interesting. What does this tell us about what demons do? What kind of illness do they cause? Our senses? But what specifically about blind and mute? Can't s- yeah, you can't see and you can't speak. You know the devil wants to mute you? I've heard people suggest that the whole mass thing is a work of the devil, covering up our mouths. He wants to mute us. I just love picturing the demonic trying to hit the mute button on Matt Friedemann when he's preaching on Sunday morning. But here's the thing. You know what's awesome? When Jesus encounters the demonic, he he takes away their ability to speak. He renders them mute. Jesus has the power to mute the demonic, but they want to keep us mute. They want to keep your mouth shut. Well, that sounds a lot like culture today, doesn't it? how would the world know if we don't proclaim the gospel? I'm not saying we should pick a fight all the time, and sometimes we're not supposed to cast pearls before swine. We have to be careful about what we say and how we say it. But God forbid you keep your mouth shut all the time, because that's the devil's work. And blind, can't see. Spiritually blind. Blindness is a theme, a a a metaphysical dynamic in the New Testament. It's not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. But here, this is obviously physical, but um, interpreting as representing more than just physical, but making ill. For some reason, it messes with the slides. I'll do what I best I can here. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. Demon? You catch that? He didn't say anything about a demon up to this point. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And I think it said, and the boy was healed instantly. I think that's what it says. Does that look right? And the boy was healed instantly. These seizures were caused by a demon. That's a physical illness. Um, Here's another one. And afterwards, soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were there with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, oftentimes in the New Testament, this is what they see. He casts out demons and heals people. It's not altogether clear every time that the demons are causing the illness, but almost every time, almost every time, not every time, but very close, that Jesus casts out a demon, he also heals them physically. So they're always hand in hand. Luke 8, 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Not exercised, but that is what's happened, but healed. 
While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. (laughs) The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. From the very beginning, I've been talking about the different levels of spiritual warfare. What are they? Level one? Cosmic. Level two? Against the redeemed. And level three? The unredeemed. And what is, what is his tactic against the redeemed? To keep us from effectiveness as Christians. Paralyzation. He wants to paralyze us and he does this physically as well in these verses. Fifthly, it seems they exercise authority over geographical regions and governments. Notice I put it seems. There is some biblical support for this, and the biblical support, at least to me, seems clear, especially from the Daniel passage. However, even if the Bible is clear, and I believe it is in Daniel, that there are spirits over geographical regions, the Bible doesn't say a lot about it beyond that. And we have to be careful not to put the emphasis on things that the Bible doesn't put the emphasis on. So we can say, okay, it's there. I know I've heard of, I should say, ministries whose sole purpose is to pray down geographical unclean spirits. And to me, I'm like, I love when people pray. I don't want to prohibit people from praying, but the Bible just doesn't say a whole lot about that, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to spend our time in prayer because the emphasis isn't there in Scripture. Maybe it is. Maybe the Holy Spirit has called them. We should emphasize the things that the Scriptures emphasize. Let's look at these passages, nonetheless, about these geographical spirits. When the Most High, that's God, gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. You're like, okay, well, what does that mean? Every time the phrase sons of God in Hebrew, it's B'nai Elohim, appears in the Old Testament, it doesn't refer to Israel. In the New Testament, it refers to Christians all the time. But in the Old Testament, it's not referring to humans. Every occurrence refers to angels. It refers to unseen supernatural beings, sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. The understanding of this verse, as interpreted by some, but not all, some would interpret this differently, is that in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, remember they all are speaking the same language, they build the tower, God says, we're going to divide their speech and split them up according to ethnos, their ethnicity and the nations and all that stuff. A lot of people say, and I'm not sure really where I fall on this, if I'm with this interpretation or not, I think it's worth considering. I'm just being very frank and honest with you. That what happened at the event, according to this, is that God took the angelic beings, angels, and allocated them to have authority over the different nations. All right, this angel here, you're going to be over these folks. And this angel here, you're going to govern over this people group. And this angel here, you're going to govern this people group. But finally... Whose people is for Yahweh, is for God? Israel, his portion and allotment. It has a lot of explanatory power in this verse. And we see in Psalm 82 what seems to be a reinforcement of this idea. But this is one area that theologians and Bible scholars will point to for support that there are supernatural unseen beings who have been given authority over nations. Now, at the time of the allocation of the nations to the angels, It seems as if they weren't in a rebellious state. Why would God give nations over to rebellious angels, right? It seems as if they were in a state of harmony with God at that time and then rebelled against Him and governed them in the way that they wanted. And that's where Psalm 82 comes in, where God says, God sits among the gods, the Elohim, and says, you are not governing the peoples of the world the way you were supposed to, and I'm going to punish you for it. So I know that was a bit of a kind of a deep dive on this verse, but this is one area where people will point to for support for geographic spirits. Let's go to one that's more explicit, Daniel 10. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. okay, this is, by the way, uh, Michael, the archangel speaking. Michael, the archangel speaking. And he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, 
But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Sorry, it's not Michael speaking, my fault. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what's to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Now, let me explain a little bit. Daniel's been praying for help in Persia. And God sends an angel to him to help. And that's the angel that's speaking. And he's saying, Daniel, look, we know you've been praying, but it took me a while to get here from heaven. Because when I came to you, there was the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And that seems to refer to some supernatural being allocated over Persia that was trying to prevent that angel from getting to Daniel for help. And he was struggling with that geographic spirit, geographic, whatever that term, regional spirit. And so he had to call out to Michael, the stronger warrior, to come and help him overcome that prince of Persia. So that prince of Persia is not in reference to a human king, but to a regional spirit who's been assigned over the kingdom of Persia. That's what's happening in this text. That's explicit. That's not... That's not one possible interpretation. If you were to read the whole chapter of Daniel, Daniel 10, it's very, very clear that that's what's going on. Let's keep going in this chapter. It says more. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you, the angel speaking, but, I, but now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. So it's almost like he got past the battle line and he's communicating with his guy across enemy lines and now he's got to get back to the alliance side of where he came from, but he's got to go back through the battle line. Does that make sense? No? Kind of? The angel. No, this is just the angel, one of the angels, a lower rank than Michael. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, prince of Persia, and now the prince of Greece, in reference to a supernatural being assigned over the country of Greece. So we have one over Persia, one over Greece. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Now you're going, okay, so how are we interpreting this prince of as not a human? Well, he just calls the archangel Michael prince, right? And so we know that the word then can be applied to an angelic being. And again, I've given you just segments because we have limited time together. You read this this whole chapter, it is very, very clear. And what this angel is saying is there are spirits assigned to these regions, and they're fighting against me, and they're fighting against you. So, and then I'm going to skip past Psalm 82 because of time. Six, it seems they are attached to demons. What else can we know about demons? It seems they're attached to curses, damaged emotions, and sin. We've talked about damaged emotions and sin. We haven't talked about curses yet. There's no place in Scripture that explicitly talks about demonic attachment to curses. How are there, er- there are implications, there are areas that imply that there are demonic attaches to curses. Specifically, the dozens and dozens of Bible verses, especially in the Old Testament, against participating in witchcraft, sorcery, divination, fortune-telling, and sympathetic magic. What's Divination. What is that? It is conjuring a spirit, yes, but it's, it's, it's a specific form of conjuring a spirit. Divination is what they would do is they try to predict the future. Who's going to win the final four? Tell us, Dean. Oh, shoot. There's an unclean spirit amongst us. Oh, listen. I'm from Salem or Pensacola, New Jersey, where we have the red devils, red shirt. They would take an animal, usually a cow, but it could be any animal, and they'd cu- kill it and cut it open and read its entrails. Or they'd take bones, casting bones or dice, to tell them what's going to happen in the future. Uh, both. <laughs> sure. Divination. Oh, yeah. Happens all. We, yeah. Magic eight ball. It's divination. False guidance. Now, here's the thing about this. Why does God prohibit these sorts of activities? Why does he say no magic, no divination, no sorcery, no fortune telling, don't go to a palm reader, don't do it? Why? Okay, it does take us away from him, yes. 
Okay, you've both given, all of those are right answers, so let me restate them. One is that it assumes that something or someone other than God is in control. And that, by the way, is why Christians don't believe in luck. Because by believing in luck, we're assuming that something other than God is in control, and God's fully in control. Okay, when we go and we consult for divination, when we look for supernatural guidance into the future, what team should I put in my graphic? Or my, in my, not graphic, my bracket, that's the word. It shows how much I know about this stuff. What team should I put in my bracket? In Haiti, what they do is they go to the witch doctor to get their lottery numbers, to play their lottery numbers and get, get some money. Is it real? Some of it's real. And who's the supernatural powers giving the advice? It's the demonic. And you know what the demonic are trying to do to you? They're trying to kill you. Why are you going to go to the guy who wants to cut your head off for advice? He's going to give you the advice that's going to walk you right into his trap. That's why. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're opening yourself up to the demonic when you do that. You want advice on how to have a better life? Ask the one who created life. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, why do you go to the ones who chirp like birds and mutter, the diviners and the sorcerers, to look for advice about how to live? Why would you ask someone who's died for advice on how to live? They obviously have not succeeded in the matter, right? It's that simple. They're dead. Go to someone who's done well. Try Jesus. He came back to life from the dead. He seems to have something figured out. But that's why. It's false guidance, and the powers of darkness want to devour you. And he will appear like an angel of light to try to trick you into his trap to ultimately kill you. He's the murderer, Jesus says. That's why we don't do these things. There should be no one found among you who burns his sons or his daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, the gods that had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Um, there are more. Uh, the one from Acts. Oh, excuse me. And they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. They came to a certain magician, Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Interesting. <laughs> Bar-Jesus. I don't usually associate Jesus with bars, but... Are you all with me on that joke? Okay. He was with uh, proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Get that? The magician's trying to turn people away from their faith. But Saul, who had also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, you will, not, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately midst and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The visionary, the one who has special spiritual insight, is now doing this number. And don't you love that the Holy Spirit gave that discernment to Paul? I know what's going on here. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There are more. Paul, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participate, participants with demons. There's more. Um, we got, I'm out of time, though, is the problem. They often come in groups. There's another thing that we can know. They come in groups, and those groups have a hierarchy. The demonic, too. They're rarely just alone. They work in packs, like dogs and like rats. Rarely is there just one. Um, let me go back to curses just very briefly to tie up this loose end, because those scripture verses don't explicitly say it. Um, where else do we get that information? I said that it seems as if they are attached to curses, that people whose full-time ministry is dealing with demonization, they attest over and over and over again that when they have discovered demonic attachments, it was due to a curse that was done to the person. And uh, man, if you think that there aren't real witches and Wiccans and sorcerers and people out there who are trying to curse Christians, you're in the dark. They're very real. And I've got stories about it. And in fact, they come to church. 
sometimes, not all the time. They come to the church, and they're praying to Satan in the back pew to disrupt the service, and they're faking it. They'll pretend like they're Christians. I've got stories about this stuff. There were two witches that were regularly attending a church, and um, there was someone in the church who knew they were witches, but they didn't share it with anyone, and they were worshiping, coming down to the altar for prayer, mocking the church, but no one knew they were mocking. They thought they were legitimate, mature Christians, like, but they were casting spells against Christians in the church, trying to cause illness, disrupt, trying to devise church. This happens all the time in Haiti. Witch doctors will cast curses against churches all the time. There was a, a special speaker who was invited to speak at the church, standing at the front preaching, and these two girls came down to be prayed for, and this speaker put their hands on the girls and went, oh, we've got two witches in the house. Yep. It's real, y'all. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm saying it's deceit and it's real. God's so much bigger. And we want our eyes to be open to these things. And the speaker started to rebuke the spirits and they started to scream and convulse and they ran out the back of the church and never came back. We got to listen. If your prayer life is dull, read some of these stories. It's going to drive you to your knees in prayer. Not out of fear, but we're the church militant. We're the church militant. Uh, they come in groups. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? He said, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And so we have the herd of pigs. And he sent them into the pigs. We're going to keep going. Three types of ground-level spirits. This, sorry, when I transferred the presentation to a different computer, it messed with the formatting. Family-level spirits, number one. Are you with me on here? Okay. Family spirits are those that are inherited from generation to generation within families. It's common in cultures for people to dedicate their children to family spirits for well-being. That is protection, fortune, good health, talents, and abilities. The devil's a liar. He's not going to give your family good fortune if you dedicate your children to him or make a sacrifice to him. He's going to kill you. These spirits can be passed even without a formal dedication. There's no way of knowing how many generations back a dedication go for the spirit to be inherited. Some people in, people in deliverance ministry will say it can't go any further back than three generations. Uh, others have attested that it can actually go further back than that, so they've found. But we're not sure. What we do know is that they can be passed from generation without a formal dedication service. There are, ru there are rules of physics, right? I can't just fly out of this room. There are rules in the metaphysical realm as well where the demonic have rights and privileges, and there are things that they can do and things that they can't do, and they will exercise all their rights and privileges. And it seems as if one of the rights they have is to stay attached within families unless a specific renouncement, and in Haiti we call it a prayer of divorce, occurs. Every time, every time someone becomes a Christian in the Haitian church, they have a divorce service. And by the way, this was a practice of the early church. And even in the Eastern church today, you have a non-Christian that becomes a Christian, you have an they call it an exorcism, but don't get in your mind, you know, the movie. It's a prayer of divorce. We renounce any pacts, oaths, dedications with the powers of darkness through the generations of this family for this individual, for they have now given themselves to Christ, and those, those things have no power any longer. There's a specific liturgy that we go through. It can be. Um, some generational sin is like, we talk about nature versus nurture. Some people just have certain proclivities to anger. That could be a demonization attachment. It can just be the nature, of, the nature of DNA. It can be because of the environment the kid grew up in or that we grew up in. Uh, boy's angry because dad was always angry. He learned it from dad. You know what I mean? Um, how do we know? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it demonization? We pray and we ask the Holy Spirit for help in discerning. And of course, we crucify the flesh and we have intimacy with Jesus, the silver bullet, right? Um, so family spirits, occult spirits, occult spirits are those that come from membership in religions, cults, or occult organizations. Like family spirits, these can be passed down to succeeding generations, even to children and grandchildren who have not been dedicated. Dealing with occult spirits requires renouncing, canceling the rights the spirit has on a person. These rights are typically given through vows, curses, or dedications. Occult spirits are involved in world religions as well. 
spirits of Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, folk religion. And I hope not to offend anyone here because I know this is a controversial topic in the church. Also, masonry is a huge one. It's a big one. And again, if someone here is involved and you want to have a conversation, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but there is demonic attachment, that can, demonization that can happen through dedication and masonry. Occult spirits. Let me pause for a moment. We have three minutes left, and I'm trying to respect our time. Um, how do I pray these prayers? What are the prayers? I've put together a compilation of what it's called prayers for deliverance in Christ. And it's really just scripture. <laughs> it's just scripture. And if you're interested in that, I can make it available to you. I wrote it in such a way, when I say I wrote it, I compiled it in such a way that it can be read from cover to cover in about eight minutes, depending on how fast you read. And it's also designed to be done, if you want to, like three times a day. Like, and that's a great spiritual exercise. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read my prayers for freedom in Christ. It's confession of the Apostles' Creed. It's the reading of Scripture, all kinds of stuff. Um, it, I've, I found it, I did it for myself and thought, well, maybe other people would like this. So, uh, you know, I'll just, we'll find, Matt and I will find a way to make it available to you before we're done. Ordinary spirits. Ordinary spirits are those that gain a legal right to people because the people hang on to, that is, wallow in, unforgiveness, anger, hatred, fear, shame, feelings of rejection, hurt, lust, etc. These are the spirits we see most when dealing with deep healing. Of these three types of spirits, what's the most powerful? Family, occult, or ordinary? We talked about the family spirits, the familiar spirits are the strongest, which it makes sense if you think about it. Let's keep, they tend to be the most powerful. Um, Deliverance Ministries consistently attest to the fact when dealing with demonization from across the spectrum of the different types of spirits, family spirits always seem to be the most powerful. Uh, think about it, the bonds of family are, are the strongest. And what we're trying to do is break bonds. We're not trying to break bonds with your family, um, you know, because bi your biology is your biology. Um, but those bonds are the strongest. Let's do this. We're out of time. We got to do communion still. We'll finish this next week. And we have seven weeks. So we have two more weeks left, not just one week left. And we'll talk about six ways demonization occurs. Um, yes. This is great. And this will transition us right into communion. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Y'all know that as Christians, we need help and we need each other. Right? Amen. We're together in this. Thank you. Ask for help. The desert is the place of the demons. It's the unclean place. We talked about Caesarea Philippi a few weeks ago, right, in the gates of hell and all that stuff. And Moses is walking around in the desert in Exodus chapter 3, and there's a burning bush. Where is he walking around? Is he in Egypt? Is he in Israel? Is he in Clinton? He's in the desert. Unclean territory. He goes, what's that burning bush over there? And he starts to approach it. And he hears a voice come out of the bush. Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground, man, in the desert. Whoa. Of all the places on the face of the earth, this is the least holy place. You know what the word for ground is in Hebrew? Adam. <laughs> of the feminine Adamah. And the Hebrew says, the Adamah on which you're standing is holy. And Moses like, this? This is dirty ground. And I have to wonder if the thought ran through Moses' mind. If he can make this Adamah holy, can he make this Adam holy? Darn right he can. The most unclean place, when his presence shows up, it purifies. The demons dwell in the desert. You might have demons dwelling in you, but when he shows up, he makes that ground holy. 
And there's nothing that he touches that doesn't turn holy. Outside of Jesus, the unclean and sin is contagious. But in Jesus, holiness is contagious. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, it makes the inside of this contaminated territory holy. And here's the other cool thing. It says, the flame engulfed the bush, but it didn't consume it. You know, God's presence can engulf you but not consume you. That that holy, pure God can take up residence in you and burn a flame and not kill you because we got the blood of Christ running through our veins. That's what this is about, the holy ground.